Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Overpowering Emotions. Today's a big day. I'm very excited. I have a guest on the show, Dr. Todd Cashton. So many incredible things. I'm very honored to have him on the show. Uh, he was awarded the 2013 Distinguished Early Career Researcher Award by the American Psychological Association. He's considered one of the world's top experts on the psychology of well-being, psychological strength, mental agi agility, and social relationships. Uh, he's been featured in hundreds of different media outlets, including Harvard Business Review, New York Times, and Forbes. Uh, he's been on the TEDx stage talking about psychological flexibility. He writes the Curious Blog for Psychology Today, author of several books. His uh, most recent one, of course, that I definitely want to talk about today is The Art of in Insubordination. Uh, and in this book, he synthesizes decades of psychological research on how we can improve health of organizations on society and how we can relate that to parenting and anxiety and resilience. He really teaches us how to be courageous enough to question the status quo and instill in us the intelligence to know when and how. And today we will be talking about the bravery piece. Todd's also founded the Wellbeing Lab at George Mason University. On a more personal note, he loves steak, Whiskey, Italian rainbow square cookies. I've never even heard of those, but need, definitely need to try them. Um, he's a twin. And interestingly enough, he's also a father of twins plus one more. Very excited to join me today. And uh, hopefully you enjoy our chat as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with you this morning, Todd. How are you doing? Good. Awesome. Good day. Good day. Well, I had you on a parenting podcast a little while ago that I do with my husband and we were talking all about, you know, things related to parenting. But one of the things you had mentioned was about bravery. And we never got a, a chance to talk about that last time and thought this would be a great opportunity on this podcast since it's all about anxiety and emotion regulation and being brave. I wanted to have you so we could have that conversation here. No, it's it's so good. I even have a tattoo on my arm as a reminder that you don't get bravery without dealing with managing fear and anxiety, because that's how hard it is to retain that little bit of little bit of information. Yeah, so true. <laughs> so true. And I mean, that's what bravery is, isn't it? It's being able to face those things that we fear and kind of stretch beyond our comfort zone and it's being able to remember that because in the heat of the moment, our brain is built to be anxious and depressed and wants us at home in bed under the covers where we're going to be safe, not get eaten. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'd even go further, which is when when I experiencing fear, especially out, out in public, it's usually an indicator where there's some courageous act that probably can should possibly be taken that's that's like my instinct is to, to lean into that where there's if everyone was able to respond with an approach move when you experience anxiety there would be no such thing as courage and so i look for these opportunities i had a concert i was at last week on wednesday and a fight broke out at the concert. And I'm not 22 years old anymore. So if I get injured at a concert, I'm going to be seeing a chiropractor for three and a half months. <laughs> and uh, and I left my friend. I'm like, listen, I got to make sure no one gets hurt. He's like, listen, you're not, you can't, you can't be doing this anymore. And it's just, there's so few opportunities for physical courage. If you're not a first line responder that I actually go out and look for them because it feels so good to the psyche to know that 
it's an easy way to contribute to society. Mm -hmm. And it's such a hard thing emotionally and psychologically to do though. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a big one. So it's looking for those opportunities as well as creating them. Sometimes we just have to be able to create them. I mean, as a parent, that's something that I'm always encouraging. I do a lot of workshops for parents and even educators and other mental health professionals. And I'm talking about every day, there's usually some situation that we can capitalize on. I remember one story, actually, I was picking up my daughter. I told her, Hey kiddo, I'm going to be going by your school after school. I can come pick you up. Don't worry about taking the bus. And I'm a bit of a prankster. And I called her literally, I was one block away. The bell had already rung. Uh, and I called her and said, Hey, my meeting's running late. Can't come and get you. I was just kidding. I was full, fully intentioned to still pick her up. I was still going to, but she freaked out. What am I going to do? The bus has already left. She started having a bit of a panic attack. And I thought perfect opportunity to let her figure it out. Even though I was joking, even though I was right there, ready to pick her up, that was a perfect opportunity to say, sorry, kiddo. I'll see you when you get home. Let me know how it goes. And I hung up and I kept driving and I had to let her, I just saw that as a great opportunity is okay. She's freaking out. She needs to learn how to problem solve on her own without someone swooping in. And, you know, I could, I could have easily said, just kidding. Um, but looking for those opportunities that come up sort of naturally, but also maybe we can create some things. I'm so glad you use that example and people listening to this, because I think there's an instinct of not to do that. And if you have the safe scaffolding, which is you're right there and you can actually observe her in your car, stealth mode as she's, as she's trying to figure this out, you, if you're, you have to think of the counterfactual. If you don't give your kid those opportunities where safe ways to be anxious and panicky, where you have to problem solve, especially socially, then how is your kid going to be prepared when you have to rush to the hospital and you, you aren't home for when, when they come home from school and you didn't get a chance to call them because there's actually an emergency that's happening there. Or when they get to college freshman year, I always think of all of the parents I know in the, the safe world of Northern Virginia. It's one of those enclaves of, of wealth in, in the world where I don't want my kid or anyone else's kid or any kid to be the one that they've just drank a beer for the first time ever. They don't understand how their body's reacting physiologically. They're freaking out and they end up unclothed in the chimney and they wake <laughs> up and at, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, I don't want anyone's kid to be that, but in some ways the ill preparation in the early years sets up that kind of scenario where you end up being the person stuck in the chimney. Right. I didn't even think about those kinds of things either. Yeah. And we, we do see, you know, there, there's this pressure where, well, now, you know, now that we're talking about our kids, parents always wanting to make sure that their kids are set up for success. And so we heard of helicopter parenting, there's lawnmower parenting that are smoothing that grass, you know, perfectly cut so that that their kids can have that clean path. But now I love the idea of curling parenting, you know, where we're scrubbing the ice so that our child will get exactly to that bullseye. But they never learn, do they? You know, if, if we're always checking their homework and making sure that they're 
finishing all of their assignments, what happens in university? Are we still going to be checking that they're doing all of those things? What happens when they get into a job and they've got deadlines that they need to meet? You know, I think that there's, it's not just about anxiety and bravery. It's even those life challenges and stressors too, that, you know, like you said, setting our kids up to have lots of opportunities to be successful and, and figure things out on their own. Yeah, there's some sweet spot which will always be ill-defined between indulgence and neglect. And, and I think, you know, if you don't struggle with it, then you're not parenting. And if you think about that struggle, I would say you're on the path to you're probably already a good parent is that you're considering it. So if you're so if you're anxious of like, I don't know how to balance that, good. I bet you you're an amazing parent. Um, so you, you it's and it's not like a, a trade off where switch off indulging movements and moments where you kind of you, you were the prankster and you got to give your kid a panic attack. It's more of is that they need a regular dose of these situations where you have to resist the temptation of taking away their rejection, taking away their loneliness. And I have a very sensitive third kid and it's, it's been extremely challenging to me because I want to, you know, have that machine in 2135 when I could take all my kids pain for them. So they don't have to experience it, but she gets, she sees rejection where it's not there. And, and I have to let her physiologically calm down and then I have a conversation about, okay, like, let's, let's, let's go through the whole situation. Like, like what were the indicators that you were rejected? And almost invariably it's all in her head. And that's kind of, you know, probably what we'll be talking about over the, over the next few minutes is, and then we have to, in those moments is once they go leave, once they leave our site is remember, it's like, we're doing the exact same stuff. I mean, you know, if I go to the pool this weekend for Memorial Day weekend, as we're talking right now, and I haven't seen these parents in two years because of the pandemic, I've got all this social anxiety of like, who do I still connect with? Like, where do you start from? What's the first question you ask? It's, I mean, we're all rusty. And so all that anxiety, it's good to tap into that because the other person is probably experiencing the same thing. And these are all those little tips of the tips and tricks of the trade, such as if you're experiencing anxiety, the other person probably is also it's these are these you add up and you have an entire psychological toolbox to stay in the situation a little bit and play with it a little bit. And then later you can reverse engineer what worked and what didn't work and improve it for the next time. Right. So what would some of those things be? I mean, I, I guess as a parent, what would we need to do maybe ourselves, our own work, stepping into things, being good role models of being brave, managing anxiety and big emotions? Then we can look at the kids, right? But I find a lot of the work needs to come from us, what we're modeling or not modeling, what we're willing to feel and not feel, um, being able to go into those situations or not. Are there any things that you find as a parent that are really important? Oh, yeah. I mean, just where do you begin? I mean, one place you might want to start is separating expectations and intentions. So, um, you know, it's really important for her to think about our kids when we think about having a clean house, their room being clean, them getting all getting their work done at school. You have you might have expectations for how they're supposed to perform, especially if you were a highly ambitious achiever yourself. 
Um, or if you have a culture, you know, such as, you know, South Korea or India or Pakistan, these are cultures or, or even just, just the Jewish culture, like really heavy emphasis on education. Your kid is not necessarily a simulacrum of you where they have the same priority list rank ordered as you do. And so move, try as much as possible to move away from expectations and more about intentions. And that's part of one of those intentions is how do you want to show up? So when, when it comes to me checking in on my kids and how they're doing at school, the intention is I want to take their perspective. I want to be curious and I want to be compassionate. Those are the three intentions. Now, with those three intentions, there's no goal to meet because I can do all those things. My kid could curse me out. They could slam the door on me. But I know that my intentions were pure and, and it, that's I showed up the way I wanted to. So the outcome is irrelevant to the intentions. The other part of that is with the intention is I'm not pressurizing my kid. I'm just basically creating a regular normative thing, which is, I'm going to check in. I'm not going to be punitive. And if you didn't get the work done, I'm not going to flip out because my intention is compassion. I'm going to feel like, hey, listen, how can I make this easier for you? Like maybe maybe we started this in an earlier time. Maybe I should have come in and asked you at three o'clock in the afternoon versus nine o'clock at night. And now you're getting tired right now. So I'm putting a little bit of the load on me and I'm being compassionate. And the individual moment doesn't matter. It's the pattern that they start to see you coming in that, you know, how are you showing up in these events? But the expectations, it's like this dark cloud that can hang over them of, am I getting your love? Like, am I meeting the threshold to win you over? And when your kid feels that way, you've got to, you, you're creating unnecessary problems, both for the relationship and also for whatever the work or the thing is that you're hoping gets accomplished. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example of that? Oh yeah, I mean, because yeah, because I suck at this all the time. So we can, <laughs> we can, yeah. Um, so one of my daughters, for example, uh, my twin, fifteen-year-olds, just came home after three days being with another family. They went to the beach, and so she came home at seven thirty p.m. And I knew she was going to be tired. She actually, because she's been with me for fifteen years, so she knows this intention expectation thing. She texted me on the drive home saying, "Listen, when I get home, please don't talk to the parents. Spend too much time. I'm tired. They're tired." So honored that, uh, made that quick. And then when she came home, I said, hey, by the way, after asking a few questions, the curiosity, right? Curiosity, compassion, perspective. That's my intentions for most of the time with my kids. So asked a bunch of questions about, about her trip. Part of that curiosity plus compassion for a 15-year-old is that, hey, if she, if she met boys and she tasted her first beer or whatever it is, I'm not going to react because I have the compassion part and the perspective part. So if I react excessively for small transgressions, then I'm going to lose intel for the next situation. I'm going to make it taboo, which makes it more likely that she's going to engage in more delinquent behavior. And I'm going to artificially create a problem in our relationship when part of her job at this age is to start to develop autonomy. It's more about what happened. How'd you feel about it? Did you notice like your, your brain was working a little bit differently and we could playing there in my view is a more effective approach than going from like a, you know, a FBI profiler approach where I'm just trying to figure out like you got to follow the rules rigidly. Um, when it comes down to if she had a couple sips of a beer, which by the way, she didn't, it's just 
it's not that big of a deal. Like it's, it's not, yes, there's a law that she's not supposed to, but she's also with a bunch of adults who I know on this trip. So all of there is with the intentions and no expectations, we can have a adult-ish conversation. She knows she can reveal things that were maybe suboptimal or less than desirable. I can give her feedback, but it's not punitive. And then she's realizing, oh, our relationship is changing as I get older. It's evolving. And she sees that. And I actually mention that. Like I mentioned the mile marker. Hey, you know, I appreciate like now we can have these conversations where you tell me something that you might not have told me before because now you're old enough to like to actually work through what's helpful, what's unhelpful to how you want to show up for things. Right. And it's not punitive because if it is, and oftentimes, even when we're well-meaning, we respond in very punitive ways that's for their brain, very punishing, they go underground and you're right. They won't want to talk about it in the future. So how do you use all of those? You know, if they are, I don't know how anxious your kiddos get, but if we're looking at, you know, something that's really, they're, they're stressed out or they're scared, an upcoming event, how would you use that intention to help them regulate their own emotions and be brave and still do the things that they need to do. Yeah. These are, these are great questions. Okay. So their younger sister, who's nine, she's having a hard time with that because one of the things about the pandemic, everyone's talking about the epidemic of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and loneliness. What people aren't talking about is rusty social skills. And also is that over a two year period, People have changed. So my nine-year-old's having a hard time because a lot of her friends aren't the same people that she knew two years ago now that they're hanging out face-to-face all the time. This doesn't have to do with the pandemic. This is really just about over time, people change, especially kids. And um, so the intention part is like, listen, even though that your friend still likes to play with stuffed animals and you don't, and you feel you're more adultish than them, hey, how can like, like how can you show up and just show her that you want to just hang out with her when it's an activity not involving stuffed animals. So it sounds more complicated than it is, but it really is that she can be your friend. You could hang out in activities and maybe there's some activities you don't like, but it's not that she's not your friend anymore. It's just that, so this isn't what I would say is the Venn diagrams are not, don't have as much overlap anymore, your life and her life. But so you can opt out of certain activities, but still be your friend. Cause originally she was, listen, this girl's not really my friend anymore. We don't have the same things in common. And once I dug deeper with the curiosity part, you realize, oh, it's just that she likes to play like childish games. And my daughter isn't into those games. Well, is that good criteria to put someone from friendship category to enemy, or I don't want to spend time with you category. So we got to play with it, with those ideas. And then it's, we're going to the pool. So there's not going to be stuffed animals in the pool because it's mm-hmm. going to be, it's going to be wet water. So in this case, you get to see like, Hey, personality wise, do you guys still have fun? You laugh together because clearly she wants to hang out with you. So all of that sets up where, we now have the intention of, hey, I'm going to show up. We're still friends. going to hang out. And it also sets up another conversation in the postmortem that when we go home, which was, hey, how did things compare to how you expected them to be? Mm-hmm. So you expected you're not friends anymore. You wouldn't have fun together. And 
almost invariably, unless there's like a really problematic situation, things are not as bad as your mind tells you. Right. And that's something that I'm always talking about. You know, cognitive reframing is not a talk through process. It's an experience process. And we have to be intentional afterwards. What did you learn from this experience? It's through that experience that we are going to contradict that initial story we might have had going into the situation. Um, And so you're talking about, you know, when you sit down and look at the evidence, there's been a couple of times now just with your daughter in terms of, hey, it's not actually that initial conspiracy story that your amygdala was trying to spin in the first place. Um, Do you find that it's through experience and later on that reflection of what did I learn and how did I handle it? Or do you think that there's other work that we can be doing just going back to sort of that cognitive reframing piece? Oh, yeah, both of them. I mean, but I th- this is also like I want anyone listening to realize this is not kid stuff like this is adult and kid stuff for, for thinking about this. I mean, we we are much worse than our kids at making evaluate evaluating ourselves constantly against this completely hypothetical pseudo quasi idea of this is what makes me popular and socially attractive. And this puts me a blow a below this threshold like this doesn't go away in childhood. And, you know, and, and even, and even, you know, even Tibetan monks, when you actually like explore their lives, where they spend 20 years mastering their consciousness and, you know, obliterating the self um, and kind of reducing social comparisons, it's actually not what happens on the ground level. On the ground level, if you go to Tibet, because they're, they're, they're so popular in the media that they fight for who got on the cover of Time magazine, who had the most journalists call them. So even for these for these people that are spending all of their lives trying to reduce all this mental chatter, they're still doing these social comparisons and they're still evaluating themselves against other people. So this is just like a human species source of suffering that's happening there. Um, for me personally, the way that I train my kids is what works for me, which is more self, self-distancing self strategies. So co- everything, I, I love, Caroline, the way you describe cognitive reframing, which is not just about challenging a thought, but challenging the stories that you hold about yourself and other people. Or even like there's a story about me and my relationship to school, and there's a story about me and my parents. Um, the self-distancing part is... There's so many ways of doing it, but one of them is, hey, imagine six hours from now, how are you going to feel about going to the social situation and talking to this kid six hours from now? So I know that I know, I know like your heart's racing right now. I know that your legs are a little bit stiff and you're tense. And I know like, uh, you know, you're kind of feeling shaky inside, but let's like fast forward. Let's fast forward to tomorrow after when you go to school, you know, after a full night of sleep that happens there. Just that there's a future version of you and a present version of you is is completely mind blowing to kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, I mean, even for adults it works, but for kids it's like this is this is not this. Uh, taking a step back, we forget just how complicated it is to have that you can observe your own mind, and when you can tell kids that they're able to playfully agree or disagree with what their mind is saying it's i mean it's like going to another planet and for space colonization and so i really think you have to um treat kids like they're smarter than they are but when it comes to metacognition of 
thinking about thoughts and having emotions about emotions. Um, it is so sophisticated that it's easy to think that kids will just gravitate towards good coping strategies and they really do have to be trained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we forget. We, we just expect them to cope or to behave or to get along with their sibling, but they actually need to learn it explicitly and practice. They have to practice. I will have kids come into my office and they're working on frustration tolerance and I'm being mean and I'm playing a game and I'm flipping the board and I'm freaking out because I'm acting like a little sibling. So it's the practice of being able to go into those situations. And I love that I I always talk about your future self, right? How can we help your future self? But even I find sometimes kids have a hard time processing and they still get caught up in whatever story they have. So sometimes it's an experiment. It's that curiosity, which I love that you keep mentioning, right? We're going to play detective. Okay. So in six hours, you let me know how are things sitting now? What are other people's reactions now? So that we're drawing it back and back and back to create the memory bridge of Maybe I handled the situation. It didn't turn out as bad as I thought. Even if it does turn out as bad as we think it does, I still handled it. I still managed it. Even the really bad situation, it sucked, but I was still able to survive. Yeah. And so this is where you take self-distancing in the other temporal direction and you go to the the past self. So the past version of them where you're like, um, where you say like, hey, remember that kid that like pushed you on the playground? How often do you think about that now? That was, I was, so I was last year. Remember, remember that kid that said, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Um, remember that birthday party that you weren't invited to? Not that you want to like invoke all these negative memories and like re-traumatize them. But to your point, it's the end game is, is you're reminding them like, listen, you're strong. Like you're tough. Like you're like, you're assertive. Like you, like you are emotionally powerful. And when you do that, it's not just that moment. You're actually re-altering those narratives so the narrative isn't that they didn't get i mean i'm making this up as i go you didn't get it's not it's not that you didn't get invited to the birthday party it's not that you got you were a victim and you got pushed it's not that you know you failed the class it's that all these things happened and now you have friends you're not bullied people don't bother you as much you're doing good in school and the first thing Whatever you did, something in you allowed you to get to now all these like really healthy outcomes that occur now. And so you're rewiring the entire story. So and 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 the pulling back the uh, the blinds on this one is that I don't want parents to worry about bringing up bad memories and really thinking that their kids are that fragile because this is how they make connective tissue to see you can't get strong unless you're tested, unless you go to the gym and actually wear out the fibers and the tendons in your muscle, you don't grow a bicep. And in the same way, so we understand this physically, but we have to understand this emotionally and socially. If you don't wear out and really test yourself, like, and push, like push the boundaries of who you approach and push the boundaries of like what you're able to withstand in certain terms of someone insulting you or not inviting you somewhere, you don't develop perseverance. It doesn't just pop up into your, your psychological repertoire. It comes from is that you endure hardship. It's part of the definition of perseverance. And so don't be afraid to bring up negative things with your kids because they're going to be put into a bad mood because the end game is you're altering their personality and how they see themselves. Right. 
And I think too, oh man, I always, I got to write stuff down because I get 20 million different ideas. And then we go off in all these tangents, but even resilience, you know, the definition of resilience is all about, we need stress, we need adversity. And oftentimes we try to soften the blow. And really what it comes down to when it comes to anxiety and emotion regulation is distress tolerance. We have to learn to tolerate those feelings, whether it's anxiety or disappointment or heartbreak. You know, I think parents want to come in and make their kids feel better. It's okay, kiddo, your girlfriend broke up with you. There's a million other fish in the sea. Um, And so I think that's, you know, a piece of this is them just being able to sit in that um, and that's going to help them with regulating their emotions, but growing stronger, right? At the end of the day, it's being able to kind of go through all of that and cope with it themselves, not always relying because we create a dependency trap or then we're always relying on someone to make us feel better. Yeah. I mean, the way I, I can't remember who came up with this term, but therapy to me, and, and therapy is not seeing a therapist, like therapy is just any intervention. It could just be interventions on yourself. Like using these strategies is you doing informal therapy, is sitting with uncomfortable emotions or sitting with emotions, trying on a new perspective, and then trying on a new behavior. I mean, that's pretty much how most interventions work. And so you have to walk through your kids through those three stages. First, to sit with emotions, which means I'm not just going to try to put you into a good mood. I mean, this is the prototypical dad, right? Is you pick him up and then I tickle you, I blow into, you know, I blow into your belly and, and I kind of, you know, all of a sudden you're laughing and we kind of forget something negative ever happened. Well, it's nice to have the positive moment, but parenting is more sophisticated than that. And the new perspective is the self-distancing, the cognitive framing, thinking about that we create stories for ourselves. And damn, is it a good strategy when we reveal whatever happened in the past 24 hours, how we dealt with our own crap and we have our own stories and our, and our labels for them. Like that really works for kids because they see us as invincible creatures unless we show them our, you know, our flaws and our birthmarks. And then the other part is trying on new behaviors. I mean, I, so, you know, for me with my kids, I am very good about, there's not everything that I have an A on, but this is where I have an A on is I'm very good at revealing of when I'm trying things that I suck at and I make sure that they're present. I make sure that they hear about it. I mean, I think the first time I went on a skateboard was like 38 years old and they got to see me struggle to get down a hill. Um, or even just stay on the board, I mean, over and over again. And they also got to see me try over and over and over again. And be like, dad, God, you suck so much. I'm like, I know, <laughs> but it's so much fun. Like, to because I really want to be able to ride down this hill. Um, so pulling back the, you know, the veneer so they can see that reminds them of, of much more than any words that you can give them. So true. Actually, just the other day, so I have a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old, and my 11-year-old the other day was like, mom, do you ever get scared? And that was so eye-opening for me because I'm scared all the time, but she's not seeing that, you know, because I, it, it looks like I'm always so confident coming into these situations, whatever I'm doing, even just presenting, you know, she came to me, actually, it was a couple of weeks ago, I went to a school and there was a huge auditorium of parents. And that's when she whispered are you ever scared? I'm like, I'm scared right now. You'll see that my voice is quavery, but I think just being able to 
even though I go into those situations scared, it's explicitly talking about it because they might not, they might just look like, you know, from their perspective that we're confident and we can go and do all of these things. So I think that that's such, such an important point. Yeah. I, I was going to say, sorry, this was that uh, I had a recently where, where my daughter said to me, yeah, but I'm not you. And, mm. and then we had to like play with that of, we both have these, you know, my, my, that daughter and myself, we, I'm like, listen, we have these jagged profiles. I'm like, here's the things where you're better than me than I was at your age. And here's the things that at your age, I was better than you, than your age. It's not, it's not like we want to swap profiles. It's just that they're, they're different profiles. But the other thing is I wasn't me when I was nine. And so, and, and that gets the self-distancing part. And, and, and I think this is important because parents like people to look up to them. We all like people to look up to us. We all like people that have an affinity for us, that treat us, that we're smart and creative and intelligent and brave. And they might not say it, but you could see it in their eyes. And I think you have to do the opposite. I think you have to you know, show, show all the steps that get you to these psychological strengths. Um, if you're, you know, and this is, I mean, I do believe this is, this is like higher level parenting. If you just do the basics, your kid's going to be fine. These are like, do you want your kid to reach their human potential strategies? Not, will my kid have a decent life? Like they're almost, if you're listening, anyone's listening to your podcast, their kids are probably having a decent life. Um, this, but this is, but I, I do believe it's, it's worth the extra equity to put in sweat equity to actually to, to push your kid to not achieve these great heights, just reaching their human potential. Mm -hmm. So what would some of those things be that we would, you know, to take our parenting to the next level? Yeah. I mean, just it fits with, you know, like, I mean, what I've been doing for six years of, of teaching like these little principled rebels to go through the world, which is, Adults aren't always right. And I think it's important to teach your kids of when there are dysfunctional ideas um, and adults are wrong and you have an opportunity to ask questions, to teach your kids to, to start asking questions. There's such a level of agency and empowerment of a kid that raised their hand and say, you know what, I learned it differently than that. And I'm not really sure that, wait, was Germany on the same side as Russia in World War One, like, and they could just kind of, and they could be wrong, or they could be right. But like, the thing is, it's, and just to train them to ask those questions. And if they're wrong, to be like, okay, cool. And, and make sure that that doesn't end up being the end of the premature end of them asking questions. And if they're right, not to gloat, but it's just, just more of a internalize is that you have the power to ask these big, tall, large people that they're not automatically right. And sometimes they're wrong. And those lessons, as you're saying, like with these behavior experiments, like teach your kids to do these behavior experiments. It's also partic particularly if you're raising girls, I'm raising three daughters, but it's no different than boys. Um, to me, these lessons of questioning authority is another way, is a, a another roundabout way of training your kid to be protective against for lack of a better term, sexual predators that are potentially going to be exposed in their lives. And so I think a lot about what my kids will be like at 18 and 21 and 25. And I've, with my older daughters, I've talked about, you know, the most dangerous thing they're going to face in their lifetime is going to be their romantic partners. It's going to be the most dangerous weapons. And so the things about that asserting themselves now, where when we go to restaurants, 
I make sure they speak for themselves in terms of what they want to order. And if there's something wrong with their plate, I say, listen, when the waiter or waitress comes back, tell them they may say yes and take it back. They may not like, but, but let's test that. I am setting them up on the path is that when a boy comes up to them when they're in high school or college and says, Hey, you know what? Like, listen, everybody's doing it. Like what's, what's the big deal is that they will be able to speak up for themselves. And it's not at that moment that you train your kids to be assertive and have agency. It starts whatever now, like the now, like now is when you start and you raise those kids. And there, there've been a few times where my kids um, said something in the wrong manner or tone to a teacher. And I got called into a school. Um, I won't say the exact example, so I don't embarrass my teenagers when they listen to this. But when I came in, I gave this exact same storyline to the vice principal or principal and said, listen, this is a school, like they're learning how to find their voice. And I don't know how they said it. It sounds like they said it in a tone that was overly aggressive. I get it. Um, I think what your teacher could have done or if the teacher was there, or what you could have done is you could have basically shaped them and said, you know what? I love what you were saying. Didn't really love the way you were saying it. Here's how it came across as. I felt like you were disrespectful. I felt like you were extra angry towards me. I would have rather you have done that as opposed to you saying, you know what? Now you're in trouble. Go see the principal because you didn't teach my kid the lesson. And there, this is how it starts. It starts where when someone that's passive the starting phase of them learning to assert for themselves and be empowered is to be overly aggressive. And then you pull it back a little bit. So they're kind of like more assertive. So for you, I said, you missed the opportunity to learn for them. And um, it's fine if you want to give them like a, a minuscule punishment. But honestly, I think the better way for you guys to handle this is to, you know, to at the principal's office is um, teach them the better way. And I don't see a need for a punitive thing for them just trying to find their voice because who was supposed to teach them right. you guys and me yeah. and and i think so this is you know this is a story for parents as well and and i i wasn't always like you know appropriate when i was i sometimes let my temper get to me when i was in these meetings um but i think you could also train social emotional learning is is a new thing still in schools and i think you get to train the teacher if you can keep your cool a little bit and the vice principals and principals right I'm very similar. I mean, yeah, if you want a drink from Starbucks, you got to order it yourself. It can start with those subtle things. I actually had a recent example with my high school daughter who was telling her social teacher, you know, essentially challenged the information and ha had sent an email saying something, the introduction was something along the lines of, how qualified are you? <laughs> and should you be <laughs> teaching something that you don't know the topic, you know, the content of, and then actually had a fantastic email after that, but that got the teacher's guard up right away by saying, and then she ended it saying, you know, there's a library across the street, if you want to find out more information. Um, and so, you know, the teacher didn't respond very nicely to that and was essentially saying, this is the problem with teenagers, they think they're know it all entitled, you know, and so now I worry that my daughter will never speak up again. Right. Even right. though she felt so, so empowered in that moment, because she was, it was a very important topic to her. So how did you debrief with your daughter? No, you first. I mean, cause so this, this, okay. <laughs> no, I, I love this example, right? Because the meat of the, of the communication was dead on, but the opening and ending, and we have a tendency to focus on openings and endings 
weren't articulated perfectly, which is exactly what you'd expect from a teenager. Yeah. So she called my husband in a panic attack when she got the teacher's response, which was quite nasty. And open up, we asked open-ended questions, right? What did you learn about this? What was your intention? You know, looking back at this email. So she knew right away, okay, this is how I should have phrased it. So we weren't telling her, you need to do this and this and this. It'll go in one ear and out the other. So using, just like you were saying about curiosity, open-ended questions, she realized where she went wrong with the email, what she could have done differently. And with anything that we do with our kids, you know, when they make a mistake is how do you fix the mistake? So she created a plan right away. She knew she had to go in tomorrow and speak face-to-face with the teacher. And so she did, she reached out, she set an appointment up with the teacher so that she could go in. She felt like she was going to puke the next morning, right? Because now she actually has to face her teacher. Yeah, even I would at this age, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But she knew she had to do that. And she went in and had the conversation and it's fantastic. And the conversation went fantastic. They both, you know, apologized and both acknowledged that their emails to each other wasn't, you know, what they (laughs) had really hoped. Um, And they cleared the air. But I mean, it's challenging. She could have just hunkered down and hid and, and not, ever mentioned it again and avoided her teacher for the rest of the year. And, you know, but she knew she had to take another step to, to correct this. Yeah. I, I love, I mean, everything is in that story. And, and the thing is not all stories are going to end up that nicely. I mean, you know, you could have the teacher that has the aversive reaction of like, listen, like, like just don't ever send me an email like that ever again. And then, um, and then, and then you could pass this class, which is not a suboptimal reaction, but you could expect pretty typical. I like, I like the piece because every kid has to learn what's the way that I could do this. And every adult, what can I, what's the way I communicate this that makes people have their defenses come down a little bit so they can be more open and receptive to whatever my thing's going to be, right? Just insert any political culture war conversation and the openings are really important. Like, how do I make sure that the defenses aren't up completely? Um, and that's that's a lesson all of us can learn. I mean, I've been spending five years studying how do you get blues to talk to reds, not to change their mind, but just to collaborate together on a project. And it's super challenging. Just a second people figure out your tribe, they automatically put their defenses up. And so there has to be a way of really careful way of communicating the norm of what you're trying to get at, which is not to change minds, but just to communicate. Listen, when you say this, it bothers me. And I don't know if we even need to be having this conversation in the first place. Right, right. A lot of what we're talking about sounds a lot in line with your new book. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about your book and how this applies to some of the things that we've been chatting about today? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the book, if the the theme is all about kids, it's really if you lack power and status, how can you be persuasive and influential to try to create a more utopian world for yourself and for other people and for kids and for I mean, I always envision this being like a graduation book that all high school graduates would get because they are they do lack power and status when they take jobs they're the newcomer they're the intern and then what newcomers we we know from organizational psychology research when newcomers come into companies with good ideas people usually go listen that's a really good idea and when you make it to being an executive in this company like people will listen to you 
this is a very common response that people get. And the question is, how can you not have to wait seven years before someone hears that your idea has a chance? And it's really about what's called minority influence. I have to avoid the term because the, we've kind of misappropriated the term as only being related to race. And it's really about any time that you don't have the numbers, you're low in the social hierarchy, and then you just don't feel empowered. There's the way that you have to influence people is different than when you're the power player and you're in the C-suite and you have the, you know, the reserve parking space. Right. Okay. Interesting. Well, I think there's so much that we could continue going on, but it's been already 45 minutes here. So we should probably wrap up any last minute words that you think would be important um, to either summarize or just one last mention for parents out there with anxious kids. Yeah, I mean, I have I have such I mean, this is what I started as with when I became a psychologist was my thing was teenagers with social anxiety. So this is near and dear to me. And I'm seeing the the rise in anxiety in the country um, that preceded preceded the pandemic affected by screens, but by no means do not think that this is limited to screens. Um, there's just there's just um, society is not designed for kids to develop social skills in this slow, systematic, guided way that it was in the past. And that's part of this because there's, we've got to, the population is too big. I mean, you're just not, it's not, you're not used to having this many mugs being surrounded by us all the time. Um, if I wanted to leave with one sort of just random thing at the end, it would be to really hone in on the fact is as your kids move up in age, their peer group has more of an influence on them than you. And one is letting go of, of, of your hold that you think you're going to have more power than them. And the second one is leverage that. So be one of the greatest ways the parents can have an influence on the development of their kids, their happiness, their intelligence, their physical health, um, their healthy habits is having them be in peer groups of people that are engage in healthy behaviors and they and they have uh, healthy ambitions and so sculpting sculpting the friendships that are going to be really valuable with with good characters is going to be one of the most important things that parents do now you don't get to choose who their friends are but you do get to help them in the relationships that you see are valuable to your kids and that might be one of the the greatest ways where you can intervene in their lives is indirectly by really helping them in those healthy relationships, their allies. Wonderful. We should have started there. That's a whole other topic, <laughs> social oh, anxiety let's, let's and friendship. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do a friendship one another time. That's fine. Let's do it. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Anytime. It's you. So. 